So Matthew chapter 2, page 974. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word, that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them, until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Well, here in the UK, we are um, obsessed with Christmas. It's official, I was reading all about it. We are more obsessed with Christmas here in the UK than anywhere else on the planet. So the head of Google News Labs says that when you look at what people search for online, the UK's interest in all things related to Christmas is greater than in any other country in the world. The article said whether it's searching for mince pies or hunting down the perfect tree decorations, the UK seems to be Christmas-obsessed. You get the feeling, though, don't you, that here in the UK, people are not quite so obsessed with Christ. Christmas-obsessed, yes. Christ-obsessed, no. The Christ of Christmas. And those who are obsessed with Christ, I guess, would be regarded as rather odd, the sort of lunatic fringe There was a TV documentary about a group of people who had become what the documentary called born-again Christians, and the leader of the group was asked by the interviewer, what does Jesus Christ mean to you? And his eyes filled with tears as he quietly declared, Jesus, he is my everything. He is my magnificent obsession. What would most people think hearing that? They would think... Freak. Lunatic fringe. Why would anyone be obsessed with with Jesus? Well, it's a good question, and it is a great question to be asking on Christmas Day. Is the good reason to be more excited about the Christ of Christmas than the mince pies and the trees and the decorations and the turkey? Well, the passage I just read from Matthew's Gospel tells us there is every reason for that. In In fact, it tells us why Jesus should be our magnificent obsession, as that guy put it. On the uh, little white sheet inside your service sheets, there's an outline just of where we're going in the next few minutes. You may find that helpful. But I want us to begin by thinking, what do the wise men ask when they arrive in Jerusalem? 
So have a look at verse 2 of chapter 2 of Matthew's Gospel. They say, where is he who has been born king, king of the Jews? Who does the Old Testament prophecy say in verse 6 is going to be born in Bethlehem? Matthew 2, 6. A ruler. King, ruler. As the carol says, hark the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn king. The great news of Christmas is that the king has come. The king that this world so desperately needs. Someone with power. Someone with power to put things right. Someone with power to sort out the mess. Someone with the power to deal with evil. To put an end to poverty. To overthrow injustice. To bring in the world we long for. To rescue us from enemies too powerful for us. Someone with the power to defeat not just cancer, but to defeat death itself. I don't know if you've been into uh, watching The Crown on Netflix. We love it. We're into it very much. One thing it brings home, though, is that the Queen does not have any real power. She's wonderful, but she doesn't have any real power. She meets the Prime Minister every week, and she can ask questions, but all she can really do is just support him. In the Bible, the King is not like that. Not some powerless figurehead. In the ancient world, the King was all-powerful like King Herod here in chapter 2, who later in Matthew 2, he orders that all the baby boys in Bethlehem under 2 be killed, and that happens. Now that is absolute power, albeit used for a bad purpose. Now imagine absolute power used not for evil, but for good. We long for such a ruler. And the message of Christmas is that that king has come and will one day return. Now you might say, well, nice story would love it to be true, but how can we really know? I mean, in our age of fake news, we're very sceptical, aren't we? How can we be sure? What evidence is there that Jesus is really the king we long for? Well, there's plenty of evidence when the baby grows up, and if you read through Matthew's Gospel, you can take a copy from the red table on the way out. Loads of um, evidence, eyewitness testimony to what the baby did when he grew up, signs of his kingly authority, his teaching his miracles, his death and resurrection. And in the final chapter of Matthew's Gospel, Jesus says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. And you see that when you read through Matthew's Gospel. He's shown it. But there's evidence that this is the king, even at his birth. Where is the evidence at his birth? Well, in the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. The Old Testament scriptures were finished, they were completed 400 years before Jesus was born, and they provide a picture of the king who would come. And Jesus is a perfect match with these ancient prophecies. We had in chapter 1 yesterday, as we looked at that, we, we had the ancient prophecy that the king who would come would be born of a virgin. But there are another three examples in the reading we just had from Matthew. And I put them on the sheet. Firstly, the rising star. In verse 1 of Matthew 2, it says, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. It's interesting, isn't it? So these guys were wise men, um, pagan astrologers probably, probably from Babylonia, maybe Persia. We're not told how many there were, 
So the carol which insists we three kings is just pure speculation. But why did they make the trip? They say, we saw his star when it rose. And we're thinking, what star? And what do they mean when they say his star? There's an Old Testament prophecy in the book of Numbers, written about 1,400 years before Jesus was born. It's in Numbers 24, verse 17. And it is about a king who would come and who would be born in Israel. A world ruler who would be born in Israel. And this is what it says. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. It was a famous prophecy. And these wise men, although they weren't Christian people, they were pagan astrologers, they would have known this prophecy from the Jewish communities living in Babylonia and Persia. And so when this star appears, and we don't know exactly what it was, but when this star appears, they interpret this as the sign from Numbers chapter 24, and they head off to the capital of Israel for Jerusalem. The second bit of Old Testament evidence is the place where Jesus was born. When King Herod asked the religious leaders in verse 4 of Matthew 2, where the Christ, that was the title of the promised king, where the Christ was to be born, we read in verse 5, they told him in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. That prophecy is found in the Old Testament book of Micah. We had it in our second reading. Written 700 years before Jesus was born. And notice how specific it is. That the promised king, the Christ, would be born in Bethlehem. Now there were two Bethlehems at the time. And the prophecy specifies which one it would be. It would be Bethlehem in Judah. Now Bethlehem in Judah in the first century would have been a little village of about 300 people. If Jesus had been born anywhere else, he couldn't have been the promised king, the Christ. But he was born in Bethlehem, as the prophecy had foretold. The third bit of evidence is the Christmas presents that he has given. A prophecy in Isaiah chapter 60, written 700 years before Jesus was born, it speaks about the coming king as a light in the darkness, and then it says this in Isaiah 60 verse 3, Nations shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. They shall bring gold and frankincense. And so in Matthew chapter 2, the wise men come bearing gifts. We read in verse 11 here, Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. Which, incidentally, is why people always assume that there were three wise men, because there were three gifts. But we're not told that. There could have been two wise men with three gifts, or there could have been five with three gifts shared between them, and all sorts of permutations. Anyway, <coughs> now, we're not... Um, sorry, let me just talk for a moment about gifts. The sort of gifts that you give to someone, they tell you something about the giver. They also tell you something about the recipient. So we had a, a staff Christmas dinner, uh, the other day, we had one of these secret Santa things. And if you do secret Santa, well, okay. So, the gifts that people got for other people, it told you something about not just the giver, it told you something about the person receiving them. 
So Matt, my colleague, who's away at the moment, he got an Arsenal plaque, okay, which tells you something about him and his sort of very sad and misguided taste in football. <laughs> Ray here, he got um, a coffee canister because he loves coffee. Uh, Mary, so Matt's wife, got some uh, sort of massage balls, sort of stress-relieving things because she is a young mum. And I got a bicycle pump because um, I cycle every day, I guess. So <coughs> tells you something about the person who got the gifts. What did the gifts the wise men give Jesus tell us about Jesus, the one receiving them? Well, gold for a king. It's regal. So it tells you something about him, that he is the promised king. They recognized him as the promised world ruler. Frankincense, a bit more tricky, but basically frankincense is what you found in the temple. And the temple was the place where God met with his people. So that gift of frankincense implies that in Jesus, we meet God himself. He, he is the mediator, the go-between, between us and God. But then myrrh is an odd one out, isn't it? You think, well, myrrh is a bit strange because myrrh was what you used when you embalmed a body, someone who had died. Now, you can imagine the wise men comparing their gifts before they set out on their journey. And let's assume there were three and, you know, says, well, what have you got? Gold, yeah, for the king. And what have you got? I've got frankincense. And he says, what about you? I've got some myrrh. And they say, really? Myrrh? You know, it's a bit like, it would be like giving a baby today as a present a coffin. Or it would be like giving a baby a headstone. It's not particularly subtle. But other ancient prophecies, you see, had said that the ruler to come, he would die for the sins of the people. That's the whole reason that he was born. He was born to die. So Jesus is the promised king. He's the world ruler, the Christ. And these Old Testament prophecies all find their fulfillment in him in his virgin birth, as we saw yesterday, and here today in the rising star, in the birthplace, and in the Christmas presence. Well, how should we respond this Christmas day? Well, we mustn't respond like King Herod. Herod was born in 73 BC, and he was named King of Judea by the Roman Senate in 40 BC, and within three years, he had crushed all opposition to his rule. This guy loved power, and he was completely paranoid, which is not a good combination. So he was the sort of rocket man of the first century. Of all the fruitcakes, Herod was very much the nuttiest. Verse 3 says, When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. Herod, you see, was troubled by this news that another king had been born, because he was king, and he didn't want any competition. He wanted to be worshipped. All Jerusalem was troubled because they knew he would stop at nothing to eliminate this rival. And in the end, of course, Herod resorted to genocide. According to the Bible, though, there is something of Herod in each one of us. Now, that's not to say that we're all paranoid megalomaniacs, but that something in us wants to be king. There's this paradox, paradox that on the one hand... Our deepest longing is to live in a world ruled by the king. But on the other hand, we want to run the show ourselves. It's what the Bible calls sin, that there's something ugly inside each one of us which is self-seeking and is empire-building and is glory-chasing. Now, this ugly streak sees King Jesus as a rival, as a threat. 
There was an article a while back about Michael Jordan, the former um, household name basketball player. And it said that Jordan is at the center of several overlapping universes. At the top of the billion dollar Jordan brand at Nike and of the Bobcats and of his own company. And when he goes on overseas trips, or when he used to go on overseas trips, his private security team would call him Yahweh, which is the Hebrew name for God. Wherever he went, he was the most important person in the room. But the article ended by saying this. It said, the distance between him and us is uncomfortably slim. We want to be the most important person in the room. He is. Why do we want it? Well, the reason I want to be top dog is I think it'll make me happy, but it's an illusion. And all it does is it leaves us unsatisfied and it leaves us in conflict with other people around us who are playing the same game and stealing our limelight. And more importantly, it leaves us on a collision course with God's king and outside his eternal kingdom. So beware being like Herod. Or secondly, beware being like the religious leaders. In verse 4 of our passage we read that Herod assembled all the chief priests and scribes of the people and he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born and they told him in Bethlehem of Judea for so it is written by the prophet. It's very interesting isn't it that these religious experts they knew the Old Testament like the back of their hand. They knew the king was coming. They even knew which town he would be born in. And when the wise men arrived looking for this king, it was the talk of the town. What do the religious leaders do? They do nothing. They do absolutely nothing. Bethlehem was five miles down the road from Jerusalem, but they didn't even go to look. They couldn't be bothered. They just stayed in watching Judea's Got Talent or whatever's on the box. It doesn't make sense. What on earth was going on that they couldn't be bothered? becomes very apparent when you read on in Matthew's Gospel that basically these religious leaders had no time for Jesus because in their own eyes they were moral people, they were upright, they were good people and they didn't need him. They had this sort of nice system of morality and religion in place and there was no room for Jesus in it. Chapter 1 had said, You shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins but they didn't think they needed saving. And so the news of the Christ having come, at best, was was of no interest at all. And at, at worst, it was offensive. And their apathy, their indifference, soon became hostility. Well, again, the Bible says there is something of that spirit in each of us too. That we naturally think of ourselves as good people or good enough. It's this sort of misconception that humanity is all on different floors of some moral skyscraper and you've got the best people at the top and you've got the worst people at the bottom. And the idea runs that God accepts everybody on my floor and above. We always assume, don't we, we just make the cut, we just make the grade. So when we hear that the king has come to save people from their sins, we assume that must be other people, bad people. And so in the busyness of life we don't have time for Jesus even though finding out more would be such little effort. Other things are more important to us. But the Bible says very clearly that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And we all need this rescue. And without the forgiveness God is offering through King Jesus, there is no hope for us. 
So beware the hostility of Herod. Beware the apathy of the religious leaders. And instead, finally, be like the wise men. We have come to worship him, they say. And so they did. Verse 11 says, going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and they worshipped him. That is a right response to the true king, to worship him. And in the end, to give him not just our gifts, but to give him our very selves, our whole lives. Oh, come, the carol says, oh, come, let us adore him. It's what that Christmas poem is trying to get at, I think, which goes, you know the poem which goes, what can I give him, poor as I am? If I were a shepherd, I would bring a lamb. If I were a wise man, I would do my part. Yet what can I give him? Give my heart. Saying we're to give him our very selves, to submit to his rule, whatever the cost. So worshipping the true king was a pretty costly business for these wise men. There was the time, there was the effort, and the hardship of a long journey from Persia or Babylonia to get there. They gave him these expensive gifts, and in the end they risked the wrath of King Herod. Why did they do it? Well, verse 10 tells us. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. It was worth it because of the joy of finding and worshipping the true king. Following Jesus can still be a costly business today. It means laying at his feet not just our treasures, but our whole lives. It means living for him. And for many around the world today, that still means a lot of hardship and opposition. You may have heard of a woman called Asya Bibi. She's a Christian in Pakistan. She is spending her ninth Christmas on death row on charge of insulting Islam. Separated from her husband, separated from her five children. And even in our culture, there's a price to pay. I wonder what the cost would be for you following this king. Why bother? Well, because Jesus is the true king God has sent. And in worshipping him, there is great, great joy. The experience of the wise men, that first Christmas time, can be our experience too. We were made to live for this king. To be part of this king's kingdom is the greatest blessing. There is forgiveness of sins, and there is relationship with God. There is meaning in life, and there is hope in death. To be outside of his kingdom, eternally, is our worst nightmare. Being obsessed with Christmas, there is nothing at all wrong with that. Mince pies, trees, turkey, decorations, all fantastic, great fun. But being obsessed with the Christ, the King of Christmas, that is to really get what Christmas is all about. So this Christmas time, this very Christmas day, may Jesus the Christ, the promised King, may he be our magnificent obsession.